the people you hire are also your business. They matter so much. Yeah. And who, their lives and their ability to do their best work also is so important for your business to survive and to scale and grow. But identifying and understanding where the balance between that and business objectives are is really tough. And I think I've seen a lot in venture that a lot of founders skew towards whatever it takes to get the job done, right? And they really ignore that. But in the long term, it causes a lot of problems. Mm. And so I wanted to avoid the longer term problems. And two, like what I want to do here is not, I mean, everyone wants the money that comes out of this experience, but I need this business to exist for myself, for like my mom who needs these products, for the customers who've come to us and told us that we've changed their lives. Like I want this to be the standard on the way the industry thinks about serving black women. And if I don't do this and if I don't go as far as I possibly can, I don't think it will exist. I think we will revert right back to the archaic practices and perceptions of how we how consumers in this market deserve to be treated. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to the More Rounds Podcast. I'm Kim Lewis, your host, CEO and co-founder of Chromix. And today, you guys, we're going to talk about how to fund your business, whether it be cash flow, credit, debt, or raising money from investors. And today, we have one of my good friends, Iso from Parfait, an AI-powered wig company. If you want your custom wigs, y'all, this is who you need to call, okay? But before we get into my guest, I want to make sure we do a cheers because this is called the More Rounds Podcast, Okay. <laughs> Cheers, Cheers. darling. Cheers. So, Iso, tell me about yourself, how you got started, and then later we'll get into the funding journey. Okay, cool. Well, a bit about my background. Um, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Parfait. I'm a Wharton MBA, class of 2021, but prior to Wharton, I started my career at Target in operations. And Wharton is one of the top business schools for anyone who doesn't know that. (laughs) Just so you know, Wharton was like the heaven for a lot of people at U of I and things like that, my college and things like that. Go ahead. Oh, man. You know, I didn't know that for the longest time. I really wanted to go to Wharton because they had such a great entrepreneurship program. So I literally quit my job to attend Wharton to build Parfait, but we'll get to that in a second, but... Um, at Target, I was focused on omni-channel distribution. I got really interested in last mile technologies at the time. And so I headed over to Amazon and it was one of the first 10 team, one of the first 10 team members to help design the Prime Now one to two hour fulfillment offering. Mm. Um, but what we didn't know, and like apparently a lot of teams at Amazon, we were really just the stealth team building the infrastructure for the Whole Foods acquisition. So once we actually announced that, I moved over to Seattle, um, moved over to the PNOI team, which is just the Whole Foods ops integration team, really just focused on scaling that new delivery offering in new markets, but also leading a lot of the product strategy development of our order fulfillment workforce management software applications. Um, a lot of you had, a lot of which use technology to really upskill unskilled labor, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I love the guided experiences that we were building for our associates, and I really wanted to work on technologies that help to improve the lives of people who look more like me in my community, who are more underrepresented. I think growing up, technology really is the reason why I am what I am. I didn't have a lot of opportunities to like find mentors or people who looked like me who I could like idolize at the time, especially growing up in a predominantly in a white neighborhood. Um, I was always the other. And so I always looked to like the internet, every any kind of media. And when technology really started to have its heyday during that time period, I was just so excited that like I finally got access to information and like strategies that I probably would have never known because my parents are also immigrants trying to learn how to grow up. Um, 
in the United States during a time where we were definitely not welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. it's been an interesting and an interesting experience. But that's why I wanted to start Parfait. Like our, our mission is really to create beauty experiences with technology that recognize and prioritize all people. And the technology portion of that is really what's fundamental to who I am, who my sister is. And so we just started, just decided to start with wigs and extensions just because of our own personal experiences with wigs and extensions in the United States. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 10, I was starting to get bullied for the texture of my hair. And I begged my mom for months to allow me to chemically straighten it. And she finally did. But the woman didn't know what she was doing. And literally all my hair fell out. And so since 10, I'm smiling, <laughs> but that's not. It was a so traumatizing. But you when know, you say fell out. Do you mean like, were you bald? Bald? I mean, pretty much, right? There were patches. How old were you? It was so thin. I was 10. It was oh. kind of, it was actually quite a traumatic experience. Um, I'm lucky that we're African, right? So if you have any hair, you can put extensions, you can put braids. And everyone in my family, as you grow up, as a woman you learn how to braid hair it's just culturally yeah what we do um so we try a black girl on her braids no kidding no kidding go ahead uh but yeah during from then on i've been wearing wigs and extensions or some sort of protective style just to make sure my hair could regrow did your hair grow back it did it okay. did okay. it did but i never learned how to take care of it because i i moved so deep into that realm because i never wanted to have that experience again oh. i refused to let chemicals touch my hair ever again but i was also in spaces where everyone just thought i was ugly and so wigs and extensions and you're beautiful by the way oh thank you <laughs> but wigs your ex- cheekbones are everything just oh. if you needed to hear from me now you know i appreciate it and it's so i wish people would say would have said that when i was younger because the level of self-esteem that you lose when people tell you that especially that early it does change who you are a little bit so like i personally i just like refuse to identify as beautiful i just that's just not who i am as a person it's not how i grew up and what do you mean you don't identify <laughs> as beautiful? Yes, you are. Oh my God. Stop it. I don't see it in that. Like, Let's say right now. Let's take a moment. <laughs> I am beautiful. No, I believe that to my core. Don't get me wrong. I think the idea, the word beautiful is less of like the perception of how people perceive your beauty and more about whether you fit into the constructs of what beauty is supposed to look like, mm, if that makes sense. And so I personally try to separate the two because I think the traditional sense of what people have decided is beautiful is not just not really what I want to be mm-hmm. or who I who I just am, you know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe I want to be them, I don't know. I, I haven't even th- I haven't thought that much about that piece. But I've just seen and I've recognized as how I feel as a person, the difference in that identification. I think it's important. At least it's been really important for me and my own identity as I think about my past experiences and how who I want to be in the future and who I want to be for my future children. So I'm going to switch up a bit and I'm going to do the lightning round first. Okay. Normally I would go with like the funding and how you got your money and nah, there's enough of those. You, and, you're at, and you have plenty of stories about how you got your money. Well, you maybe you don't have those out yet, but we'll talk about the 9 million that you've raised. Right. But I want to, I have a question about entrepreneurship. So lightning round. Okay. A belief, what is a belief that you have about entrepreneurship that you no longer have? And you can't say that it's easy. Oh, no, I never thought it was easy. Okay, good. Oh, my gosh. I was lucky because my dad, um, so I'm one of nine children, and living in California with nine children is very expensive. Very. And so he started his own business to help ensure that he could take care of his family, that we wouldn't have any kind of um, issues financially. 
Um, my mom is obviously like a, a traditional Nigerian woman, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've seen the importance of being having the ability to self-sustain yourself. And so for me, that's something that I've taken with me my whole life. My parents don't even know that this is something that they've impacted me so severely with. But just watching the ability for him to like save us multiple times because he was able to start that, I kind of felt like entrepreneurship was actually less of a risk than the traditional paths, mm. especially being a black woman and being in a lot of these environments where regardless of my performance, performance I was just seen as like other right I would get like when I was working at Amazon there was there was a point where we had this performance review when I had first moved to Seattle and all these people were calling me like oh she's good but she's a workhorse they're not a leader all these other things that were just like not true people called you a workhorse a workhorse because my skills were there and you can't deny it but you just didn't but that's like, like offensive. <laughs> don't call me a workhorse don't relate me to any animal oh man I didn't even think of it at that time because you know coming to the United States other was just how I lived my life, you know? So what is the belief, the belief that you had that you no longer have about entrepreneurship? I think the belief that I had is that entrepreneurship is only for the wealthy. Mm. I really thought, because I personally didn't have the funds to like put in a million dollars for that first level of research and development to build the technology. I went into entrepreneurship thinking I would, it was only luck after my MBA that would help me raise funds. And honestly, I was just really surprised during that entire experience when I'd have professors who would tell me, you should go raise money. A million dollars is not a lot of money. Here are introductions. Here are other, I didn't, that like blew my mind. I didn't think it was possible for someone like me. Mm -hmm. I was planning to go back to corporate. I was probably going to Microsoft after school. And then during school, someone offered me $300,000 to like build the MVP and build the prototyping and get to the seed round. And I was like, oh my God, it took me two weeks to say yes. When you say they offered you, did they look for you? No. So while at Wharton, I was so lucky to have the venture initiation program. Okay. So we have resources that they send you every week from like venture capital, from venture capital firms, from like uh, large accelerators, just information about how you can learn more about venture capital, where you can access funds. And on the forum, Unshackled Ventures had submitted um, an intake form where they're like, we'll talk to everybody, just send your business proposal, fill out this form. So I was like, all right, let me fill out the form. And they called me back. And I was Mm. like, okay. So I'm just thinking it's a conversation. I didn't know what venture funding or what it meant to raise money actually looked like. I didn't know I was going through a process. Oh, that's so cool. I really just thought they were talking to me because they're like, oh, we want to help you. You're in school. And then they offered me, I was only, I only asked for 100K and they offered me 300K. Because they was like, girl, you can give me $100,000. What are you doing? I know. I was like, $100,000 ain't enough to build nothing. Okay, but sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. And so it was in that moment that I realized, oh my God, like, this is real, right? This is something that people see as viable and that I am a good enough founder that who me and my sister were, were enough. We didn't yeah. have to have the capital to be sure like if we made really shitty decisions, we can put money into the business. People believed in us. And so when I found out for the first time that people would believe in us, mm. I was like, oh my God, this is so much, not easier, but more accessible than I thought. More accessible, I love that. The number one question I get is, Kim, will you coach me? Will you mentor me? Will you advise me on raising funding? And it's really hard to do one-on-one things, but I am going to launch a community to help you guys fund your business. And the way you get access to that community is by clicking the link in the show notes, KimLewisCEO.com, and join the mailing list. You'll be first to know when I'm dropping a community so we can help you fund your business. All right, now back to the episode. Oh my gosh, you know, I, um, that's a critique I have of black and female and black female founders. We don't ask for enough. 
And, and you know, and it's just because we had, we talked about the word grateful and you were like, oh my God, I hate that word. I do. Why do you hate the word grateful, Issa? Oh, because I don't know. Maybe it's a cultural thing where you're just supposed to be grateful for everything you have. Like you should be grateful to be alive. Like it means for me, it's always had the connotation of you don't deserve more. Mm. And I hate the relationship between the two things. So I stay away from the word grateful, especially for women and women of color. Cause they've been telling that they've been telling us that our entire lives, like Nah, I'm gonna take exactly what I want. Say it louder, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, take, I'm gonna take exactly what I want. Exactly <laughs> what I want. Exactly what I want. I love that. Okay. Um, biggest mistake that you made that you wish you could take back. Ooh, oh, this one's a big one. You know, it's so funny. I oh, biggest mistake I wish I could take back. That I could say publicly? Mm. That you could say publicly? Go on, give us the tea. Give us the tea. Oh, man. I don't know. It's been interesting. It's been a very interesting experience because I I knew the problem I wanted to solve. Mm, what's the mistake? What's the mistake? What's the mistake? I, I already feel it. You're about to lie to me. <laughs> I try to make sure I... Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Oh, man. I think I made a lot of the same mistakes all first-time founders make, right? Okay. Like, who you decide to partner with, the team, the initial team, thinking about what, like, the future looks like before your short-term needs. And I think in the very beginning, I was planning for the short-term. How do I get to the next funding round? Mm. How do I get to the next stage where investors see us as viable and can put in more cash. And at this stage, honestly, that is the game you're playing if you're going the venture route, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just about what have you proved at each stage? Um, sometimes it doesn't even mean to be revenue. I didn't even realize you didn't even have to have revenue to be able to continue to scale or raise money closer mm, to like 20, yeah. 50 million, depending on the business opportunity or the exactly. market opportunity, right? And so in the beginning, I was hiring, I was staffing, I was planning for the short term because I always had that grateful mindset. That's exactly why. I didn't think that even though this first round of investors and people did believe in me that I thought it was a fluke. Like this was the only shot. And honestly, black women barely get more than one shot. Right. And I, that to me really resonated with me because I recognized that this could be my only chance. And so I wanted to plan for the best version of what success could be, not realizing that the vision and the future were what people were investing in. Mm -hmm. Like what I wanted to build and how I wanted to change our industry and our community or what people were actually investing in. And because of that, I made like a lot of hiring decisions that I shouldn't have made. I made a lot of staffing decisions that I shouldn't have made. Like the, the age old saying like, Hire like hire slow, fire fast. I did the exact opposite. Yeah, I hired fast, fast and, and fire slow. slow for sure. And it becomes really tough because you have to balance the fact that like the people you hire are also your business. You know, you take care of Ooh, them. Say that again. The people you hire are also your business. They matter so much. Yeah. And who, their lives and their ability to do their best work also is so important for your business to survive and to scale and grow. But identifying and understanding where the balance between that and business objectives are is really tough. And I think I've seen a lot in venture that a lot of founders skew towards whatever it takes to get the job done, right? And they really ignore that. But in the long term, it causes a lot of problems. Mm. And so I wanted to avoid the longer term problems. And two, like what I want to do here is not, I mean, everyone wants the money that comes out of this experience, but I need this business to exist for myself for like my mom who needs these products, for the customers who've come to us and told us that we've changed their lives. Like yeah. I want this to be the standard on the way the industry thinks about serving black women. 
And if I don't do this and if I don't go as far as I possibly can, I don't think it will exist. I think we'll revert right back to the archaic practices and perceptions of how we sh- how consumers in this market deserve to be treated. Mm, okay. Next question. Book everyone should read. Oh my God. Ask another question. Girl, <laughs> you no. Why? Do you, oh are you all read? I do. I just haven't. After Wharton, it was just so much. I just was like, I can't. I can't do it. Pick an old book. You're I can't. a new one. Ugh. Ugh. Can I Google the one I like? Not you Google it. Oh my God. Not you cheating. Like, I am. It's actually an Adam Grant book that I read my first semester at Wharton. And I can't. I don't want to do him dirty like that. She's so funny. <laughs> she is Googling her fed, the book that everybody should read. Uh, That's how you know we should not read this book. <laughs> you can remember the title. No, I'm kidding. It's at, well, the book, you should read anything Adam Grant has written. I, he was my, what was the class that I took with him? And even management one-on-one, probably the reason why the experience I had at Wharton was what it was. I definitely came in there with like very different goals than most people. I had already had a business education. And so like a lot of the traditional finance classes, like economic, I already knew how to do a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. And so it felt a little bit like a waste of time, not necessarily because it wouldn't grow me. I What's mean, his book? Oh, you mean which of his books? Yeah, you just said any book, any Adam Grant no, book. No, right now, absolutely. But he's an organizational psychologist. Like he really thinks about how we should think and rework the way we think about how we live our daily lives mm-hmm. and at work and who we are as people. Okay. Um, I think one of the biggest quotes that I've I've always quoted from him was about like how do you build successful teams, right? Mm-hmm. He said teams are not families, they're communities. You help rise and you support each other and you lift each other up, but you cannot sacrifice the individual because you won't be able to mm. support the community. You okay. can't be a part of the community. And so I know that's from one of the books, and that's the okay. book I'm talking about. <laughs> so any Adam Grant book, we will, Adam we will Grant. go on record. Adam Grant. Okay, Thank you wonderful. for changing my life. <laughs> um, most money you lost on a deal. Oh, my gosh. Most money I've lost on a deal. Like a business deal? Or anything. You tell me whatever you want. <laughs> it's up to you. How much money are you losing on these deals? Oof. You know, I, because of some team choices, I actually lost probably a $500,000 annual deal from a vendor. And uh, yeah, if I had fired faster, I probably would have gotten that deal. Ugh. Sorry. You know, that's the hardest <laughs> question. Whenever I ask people, like, what was the most money they lost on a deal? People have said, like, quarter million dollars. You said half a million dollars. Other people have, like, three million dollars. Because it's so painful. It is. And because they haven't gotten over it, they're just like, Ugh. <laughs> So I was like, okay, so then I have to ask this next question. I have to move on very quickly. Um, most embarrassing moment as an entrepreneur? Oh. You know, it's so interesting because when I, right before I raised my seed round, I had actually broken both of my knees. I was in a wheelchair Girl, for sorry, a little you, bit. Sorry, I love the curse. You broke <laughs> both of your knees? I did. I was in, so I raised my first 300000 while I was still in business school the last semester. I went on some spring break trip and I was jumping on these nets on this boat that we were on. I landed perfectly fine, but both of my tibia bones snapped out of nowhere. And so... Ugh. I had just raised money, though, venture capital money. I only toured one person, and I'm so grateful that person never told anybody. It was an investor. And so in my mind, I'm like... Were you in pain? 
oh my God, the worst pain of my life. I'm still in pain, to be honest with you. I have actually sacrificed my own like recovery, my own well-being to at least get this business to where it is right now. Like sacrifice physical therapy when I should have. I've had so much, I don't know if it's New York, like in the medical system, I couldn't find as easily as I, what I could have in Philadelphia, like really good medical care that actually like cared about your well-being. I'm so sorry. I'm stuck <laughs> on I broke both of my knees. <laughs> How long did it take you to heal? And did you raise money while you were had yeah, broken girl. knees? Oh my god! Why is this? I have never heard you tell me this story before. I know I don't like to tell the story because I don't like the sympathy. Because what's wrong with sympathy? You broke both your knees <laughs> because it's not also relevant to what I want to build and who I am as a person and my capabilities, right? Oh my god! I, just tell me I, how much more <laughs> badass you are. How much money did you raise while you had broken knees? I raised I told like four million while I had broken knees. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> But you only because the... nobody knew I had broken both my knees. Did so you take all your calls on Zoom? Yes, I did everything on Zoom. No Girl, one met me in person. How long did it take you to heal from these broken oh, knees? Oh man, well, it took me, I want to say, four months before I could use one of the knees. And then after the four months, this one just needed a lot of therapy. And I, I just couldn't, I had to relearn how to walk, essentially. I finally started learning how to walk again maybe like six months after that experience. And that was when I was raising my seed round. Right after my seed round, that was when I should have gone to therapy, should have gone to physical therapy and all those things. But I didn't have the time. It was like time to run. You don't have the time to learn how to run. (laughs) What? I know. But I also moved to a new place. So how long were you not walking for after you broke your knees? Really, I was not walking for at least a good six to nine months. At least for this knee, like I had to get a. You didn't bone go to graft. therapy. I did in the beginning. No mental therapy. Oh girl, I couldn't find a therapist. I could not find one. Like I'm so thankful for companies like Better Health and what's the other one? Oh, Talkspace. I think that they came out at the right time because access to therapy and mental health professionals is not as easy as most people think. I have been looking for someone for maybe three years now, even while I was during during my MBA program. And I think it wasn't until after COVID that there was a lot more visibility and people started to provide recommendations. But I just, even though my mom is in the medical field, like I just didn't know how to navigate it very well. Oh and so if anyone has a startup to help me, I'm ready to invest. Let me know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I did not. How, what year was this? This was 2021 when I broke my, my knees. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm. You probably are dealing with like PSD on boats and stuff oh too. Oh my God. And like and people and, and like all of it. To this day, although I did go on a boat on my birthday the year after just to celebrate being able to like be on both feet. And walk. I know. It was crazy. And a lot of people didn't realize how traumatic that really was. A lot of people thought I was just like, oh, she's raising money and she is just so full of herself. She's so fake. And I'm like, I literally broke my both of my fucking knees while Bitch. everyone around me abandoned me. Like, what are you talking about? I'm so sorry. And I'm just <laughs> like, but you raised almost $5 million with broken knees. Like, I don't know. who does that? I don't know. Crazy people. Girl, <laughs> I don't well, know. I just, not that I'm celebrating Immigrants. you not taking care of yourself, <laughs> but people. I want you to take care of yourself. I want you to find mental therapy and physical therapy for your knees and your mind. I know. But wow, that is incredibly impressive. What's up, you guys? For many of you who don't know, I'm Kim, CEO and co-founder of Curl Mix, where we help you master your curls in 20 
one days. Curl Mix is what makes this podcast possible and it helps you get the best wash and go ever. So if you like my hair when you're watching the show, that is what got it here. We are now available in Ulta, you guys. Yes, it is our first retailer ever and it's doing amazing and I would love your support if you would go out to Ulta and try Curl Mix. All right, you guys, now back to the episode. Okay. Then how did you raise the four million? I guess you you were like, well, if I gotta sit here, I'm gonna make sure I get some money. Honestly, I mean, and at that time, as soon as I broke my knees, I realized I needed help, and so that's when I hired additional co-founders, a much a little bit of a larger team, um, and really leaned on them to help support me through a lot of that. And so we would be on like investor calls, and I would literally just be pinging them the answers to everything that they asked, so that people would see them as equal to me. I wanted everyone to see our team as extremely strong, primarily because I was so weak at that time, right? Mm. And it couldn't just be me. I needed to be uplifted and supported by the people around me. And so um, I think really leaning into that narrative and like presenting our team in the way that we did really helped us cross that finish line. Because even now, like I talked to some of my lead investors during that time, and they definitely said that if they had known, it might have gone differently. Not in a bad way, but today they would still invest in me knowing everything, right? So I really well now I would give you I would give you more money. I was like this woman's crazy. I'm definitely gonna she's gonna make this happen regardless. I am nuts. It's actually, but I think you have to be a little crazy to be an entrepreneur because all of the risk, all of the emotional turmoil, what you have to truly give up, it's probably the loneliest path you can take as a person especially if you decide not to do it with founders. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm like, I'm so lucky to have my sister. We actually weren't that close until we started the business because we're one of nine, right? There's a lot of us. And I think she was best friends with some of the other sisters that I have drama with. (laughs) Ah, That's just like other sisters. (laughs) That's a sorority, okay? (laughs) You're actual sisters. (laughs) I love them to death and they will always support me and I will always support them. And they're all brilliant human beings in their own right. Like one owns her own law firm. One is like a bioscientist. Um, oh, my brother is an engineer. One, like, it works at Bank of America as an analyst, but she's, like, you know, hot girl Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> we love a hottie. What is it? Uh, uh, um, Megan Stallion. Yeah, she's a hot girl. She definitely is a hot girl. Yes, yeah, yeah. We love a, a hot girl in finance. I'm all about it. So, so total you've raised about, how much have you raised in total? Um, now we've raised just under We've raised 10, just under 11, maybe. Mm, okay, wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. That's a big deal, especially the founder Ooh, of Oh, don't say congratulations quite yet. We Why? Gotta, Why are we not congratulating you? Because the performance you? expectations when you raise that kind of cash are high. So if you raise a lot of money, depending on where your revenue is, like we're definitely doing seven-figure revenues, but like 10 million in revenue, we've only been around for a year, right? I mean, and in, a, <laughs> in, your, in a year, a million is amazing. So even though I know, I know you raise money, whatever, I know you're like, well, I raised all these millions, and I'm doing a million. It's still amazing. Some people don't get to that. You know, I, I had investors tell me, I know people who raised $10 million or, and didn't get to $10 million. So like, you know, celebrate the small wins, you know, and – and, and you're moving forward. So don't don't downplay it, okay? Don't downplay it. <laughs> it's hard for me. I, maybe it's cultural. Like, I just grew up with a lot of discipline. And then the bar has always been... Anytime I met a bar, the bar was just continuously raised. Even by my own parents. And so maybe it's just a mindset that I personally have. But also the expectations of investors when you've raised that kind of capital in terms of their returns and how quickly you have to return it. Know that you're getting into that. I think a lot of founders don't realize that, that or those are the expectations. Mm-hmm. And that's really what gets them in trouble. Because if you and your investors are not aligned on what you think the outcomes can be, even if you don't meet the outcomes and you were aligned, the experience is better. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whether on the opposite side, it becomes a fight between both parties. 
And so I think I was very, very aware of what the benchmark was, even in the first round of funding, right? Yeah. Uh, at the time when we'd raised around four or five at that time, I knew we had to scale to four or five with that capital, right? Yeah. And I was very lucky to have Tristan Walker around me. He also, my lead investor was one of his lead investors. So it was, I was just so fortunate to- Wasn't be, his lead investor from um, the author of The Hard Thing About Hard Things? Or no? Mm. Ben Horowitz? No? Mm-mm. Oh, okay. Never mind. Was it? I may be wrong. I'm not going to speak for anyone's business. I know that poor man. Uh, he's had to deal with a lot with us. So oh my gosh, that's so funny. We mostly talk about ourselves instead of him. But I will ask him again and see if that's true. I thought it was um, uh, Mark Suster was his lead investor. You know, don't listen to me. Okay. I, I, I don't know these things. I'm guessing. I read the book. I know Trisha was mentioned. You know, and at the barbecue, different things like that to cook out. Um, okay, so we're nearing the end. But I want to know, do you have any lessons, things that you would want you want other founders to know? Or because I mean, raising eleven million dollars is hard. I haven't even raised eleven. You know, I've raised like nine, and so um, I hopefully I'll have raised more after our crowdfund. You will, girl. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, well, I want some lessons. Oh, but I also want to make sure people know exactly what you do. So, like, if you can speak to like a, a customer who maybe wants a wig, like how the process works with Parfait and what people should be doing or what it looks like. But then any lessons along the way, things you just want to, like, leave with the people. Yeah. So just starting with Parfait, um, well, we enable brands and retailers with the infrastructure and software to create personalized products for their end users. And we're starting by trying to disrupt the $13 billion wig and extensions industry. Okay. So right now our technology is able to capture essential parts of your biometric data without having to have direct access to the consumer. So with three selfies right now, we can capture the circumference of your head about, I want to say 32 different measurements right now. We don't deploy all 32 measurements, only the ones that are necessary for production. Um, And we also understand the color palettes of your skin tone, not just like the overtones, but also the undertones and how that can change over time. And so these inputs actually fuel our production capabilities. So we've vertically integrated, we've designed an on-demand novel manufacturing process that allows us to produce customized products at speed. And so right now we enable brands, retailers, and even our own direct-to-consumer brand to be able to enter this market in a really meaningful way while focusing on consumer preferences instead of having to fight with suppliers, vendors, and the supply chain to be able to actually provide value to their consumers. Okay. And so the physical product you get is a wig, right? It'll come custom fit to your head, custom fit to your skin tone, because one size does not fit at all when it comes to even lace matching for wigs, which is insane. Um, But we're hoping to be able to expand that to other products and services in the future. I think for us, the big vision has always been how do we solve AI biases and data-driven machine learning? Me and my sister come from technical backgrounds. I hate that things don't work as well for women and people of color. And when I was working at the Princeton Review, there was a, when I was an undergrad, I used to work for the Princeton Review. Um, and after I left, there was a scandal with ExamSoft where it wasn't detecting during like the facial, like the facial recognition identification process women and people of color. And I was like, what the hell is this shit? Of course. And exp- of course, I think growing up in tech, you see that tech is eating the world. I don't know if it's going to stop anytime soon, whether we want it to or not. That's, it's just reality, right? So how mm-hmm. do we make sure that we are considered that everything still works for people who look like me? I just, I don't like inequalities when it comes to the way people build products. If I can afford it, I should be able to ha- use it just as effectively as everybody else. Mm. Facts. If I can afford it, I should be able to use it just as effectively as everybody else. Um, any 
lessons for founders who see you, Iso, and they're like, oh my gosh, she raised $11 million for her a startup that helps you customize different products. And she started with wigs and I want to be just like her. <laughs> any, any things you wish you could tell young Iso who started this business? Oh man. The one thing that always resonates when I think about this question is trust your instincts, especially in the beginning. I think that if I had trusted my gut intuition on a lot of decisions that I made, I would be so much farther along. I Can think you give me an example outside of hiring. <laughs> Um, I think in the way we entered the market, right? Initially, I knew the problem was really around supply chain. I know a lot of from, from a consumer per facing perspective, all you see is the end product, right? And you've got solutions right now that are kind of ancillary. But like when you take a look at the true value chain, it's kind of a shit show closer to the start than it is at the end. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if you can solve what's happening at the start, all of that value goes down to all stakeholders across the rest of the value chain. Mm. And so for me, what I wanted to do up front is not just like build a brand and sell wigs. I wanted to build the infrastructure. I want to build the technology and show other retailers who are in the space that this is the way to serve consumers. And this is because of your experience at Amazon. Yes. And, yeah. that, and that deep supply chain. Because Amazon is a supply chain company. It's not a product company. It's Everyone calls it a marketplace. It's not. It's a supply chain company. It is. And it's the technology that they've built on the upside that has really sustained their competitive advantage. Mm. And so I knew that working there. And I saw that despite all the different, like, you can buy, once you're a billion dollar company, you can buy anything and everything and scale to every market, right? Exactly. And I think Amazon taught us that. And so for this industry, especially since it's primarily its consumers are black women. I felt like it was so unfair to start where everyone else tries to start, which is try to convince you that I had a better product than everyone. I'm going to go build a better product and you can tell everyone that it's better. Right. Yeah. And so I wanted to go through different channels that were not just typically direct to consumer. But I think at the time, as you think about the way investors invest in companies in different spaces, it's really about trend man pattern matching and trends. Right. And I think at that time, like all of these large, the heyday of DTC was dying. And I think everyone saw that. A lot mm. of these large companies that went public, you're starting to see them get marked down in the public markets. And it scared a lot of investors. A lot of investors decided it's just not a space they want to take the risk in anymore. Right. And so because of that, um, I had to transition my strategy a little earlier than I wanted to. Um, when I knew that there was still more that I wanted to do from a D2C side to understand the consumer, the product, et cetera. But originally, I wanted to be to B2B. And everyone was like, no, it's the D2C heyday. Let's go. Build a brand. You'll raise more money. It didn't happen that way. And so I'm back to where I started. Mm -hmm. But I think the lessons I've learned from not listening to myself have really stayed with me. And I honestly think I'm a better leader. I'm a better entrepreneur. I have a much better understanding of how I want to approach actually getting to the vision. Because for me, it is the vision. It's not just like, I'm an entrepreneur and I want to be a founder. Like, yeah. no, yeah. I, I want to make sure that this exists. Otherwise, I go back to Amazon or Microsoft and make the same amount of money. I mean, More money right not, now. Not the same, right. I was like, you probably could be making a couple, six figures. A lot. And then invest yeah. it. Maybe I would come out with the same outcomes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel that. I feel that. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on the pod, Esau. Where can people find you? Ooh, I'm very bad at social media. You could probably find me... I don't know. What's your Instagram handle, girl? Oh, it's just my name. Isokin Canadian. Yes, you guys. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for coming on the pod, no, you guys. thank you for inviting me. And I'm so honored. Like, I've been following you for so long. You inspire so many women. Like, I think that a lot of people forget 
how important it is to see representation of people who look like you from your it's so important and you've paved the way for a lot of us and so oh I'll my gosh she's making me sound real old no, i love it i'm kidding I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding thank you so much no my god oh my god this is amazing um thank you guys so much for watching and please don't forget to check out curl mix at ulta and i will see you guys on the next episode of the more rounds podcast peace buy her products <laughs>